Well, I want to join in welcoming you to Fellowship Franklin this morning. Uh, my name's Lloyd Shadrach. I know most of you know that, but we say that for those in the room and online um, because uh, we have a, have a team approach to teaching. So I'm one of the teaching pastors alongside Rob Sweet, um, who, uh, you know, we go back and forth between our Franklin congregation and Brentwood congregation. And we want you to know that's rooted in a deep conviction of ours that together is better that a plurality in the pulpit's a very healthy thing in that it puts the focus not on the teacher, but on the word, because y'all, it matters every day, not that you hear from me or Rob, but that we hear from the Lord, and I trust we will hear that today. Well, we've climbed the Sermon on the Mount. How about that, y'all? We are, we're closing in on the end. Uh, we stood on the peak of the Sermon on the Mount, so to speak, two weeks ago, and we stood there on that one verse in which Jesus would say in this one verse is contained, you know, all the law and the prophets, really the whole Bible in a sense expressed and contained within that one verse we know, you know, most familiar, most familiar to us as, as the golden rule. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Now, that's the peak, and then, and then we're descending metaphorically off the mountain. And what that means literally is Jesus is now concluding the Sermon on the Mount. It's a long conclusion. There's four warning passages with which he concludes. And we, we took the mountain climbing analogy to say, uh, you know, most mountain climbers uh, die on the descent, not on the ascent and in a very real way, you all, uh, as we descend the Sermon on the Mount, this is where most, um, where most people lose their lives with these warning passages and uh, failure, failure to choose wisely. Well, the first warning two weeks ago, two paths. There's the wide and easy path that leads to destruction. There's the narrow and hard path that leads to life. Um, there's no other paths. There's no third way. Uh, there's one way to life, and that's uh, in Christ. Last week, Rob unpacked the second warning about false prophets. Rob reminded us that in a day when, when the truth is hard to come by, and by that, I don't mean necessarily like the truth of the Bible, but just the truth, right? You know, the, the truth in, in, in life, in the world, facts about the world, et cetera, uh, are difficult to come by. We, uh, we need to be vigilant regarding the information that we put in our minds. And so I, I don't know about you, but I've been challenged uh, all week by his, his challenge to us when, when he said, what kind of fruit is being produced by the media that I consume? So Rob, Rob in a sense, took it out of, you know, the, the biblical context, put it in our cultural context to say, you know, what do you, what do you read? I mean, what do you watch? What do you listen to? Because you put it in your mind, uh, you know, beware of what you put in your mind. And, and one way you say, is that true? Is it right? Is, okay, what fruit's coming out of my life? Because I watch this show or I listen to these people. What's the fruit of your life? Because the, if it's not the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Sermon on the Mount, then we need to be very vigilant now, this morning, we're coming to the third warning. And this is, in, in my opinion and others, the harshest, most, in a way, draconian warning of all. And it, and it makes me want to remind us of something else that Rob said when he said this, Jesus warns because he blank. What's the blank? Jesus, Jesus warns us because he blanks us. What's the blank? Because he loves us. Now, I say that 
because we need to hear that first and foremost. Uh, it's like a parent warning a child. Y'all, we, as parents, those who are parents, know when we warn our child, it's not because we wanna deprive them of something good and right. No, no, no. And by the way, the intensity of our warning is actually matched by the intensity of our love and the danger. So, right? So, so if, you know, if it's kind of like, don't do that, then it's probably nothing big to do. It's like, don't, don't do that. You know, then it's like, whoa, it's a big deal, right? Whew, Jesus is gonna almost scream. Now he doesn't, but this, this is a don't do that passage. It is gonna scare some of us to death. And it should, because if it does, it will lead some of us to life. Now, with that said, I know we've been standing, but I'm gonna ask you to stand one more time for this reading of the word. Now, when we read the word as a church, part of our liturgy, we'll read it together. I'll lead us. At the end, we say, this is the living word of God for us today. So uh, I'll lead us, and I want you to read out loud with me our text for this morning. This is Matthew chapter seven, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. You can be seated. R.C. Sproul said of this text, and I quote, I consider these to be the most terrifying words that ever came from the mouth of Jesus, end quote. Daniel Aiken, New Testament scholar, echoes Sproul when he writes, these are some of the most terrifying verses in the Bible, end quote. And, and here's why, okay, let's, let's, okay, why are these so terrifying? Well, Jesus is saying nothing less than this. Some of, some of us who think, who think we're on the narrow, hard path to life are actually on the wide, easy path to destruction. Some of us online in the room, some of, some of us who think because we profess Christ and, and we do spiritual deeds, we think we're in the kingdom, and the truth is we are not in the kingdom. How about that? That is scary. I'll tell you what's terrifying is that there are some of us who think we are in the kingdom, but we are not, but we won't know until it's too late. Now, that's terrifying just to be as clear as I can and be and, and, and concrete for us as I believe Jesus is, not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everyone who acts Christian is a Christian. Not everyone who says they follow Jesus is following Jesus. You know, in a church our size, you know, 3,000 members, you know, about that, there's, there's simply, and, and this would be true of truly any church, especially when you get above a certain size, but there is no way that everyone who calls Fellowship Bible Church their home church is in the kingdom. 
not, not with that many people. That's the church, you know, there's, there's no pure church. If there's the possibility that I think I'm in the kingdom, you know, I'm going to heaven, I'll use that, those terms, but I'm not, how can I know before it is too late? Well, the text will answer that question with a little bit of work on our part. It's three verses. It's a, it's a simple outline. I've, I've put a few phrases to kind of help us know, okay, what's this about? Three verses, three points in the text as we walk through it, as we study our Bibles, as we do week by week, verse by verse going through it. Verse 21, there's an orthodox profession, an orthodox profession. Verse 22, there's an impressive resume. I'm trying to put some words that go, okay, this is what that is or this is what it's describing. Verse 23, there's a devastating declaration. So, so that, that's what we will, that's the, the, the topics we will move through the passage under. We're gonna start with an orthodox profession. Look again, and if you're not there, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter seven. Follow along in your Bible. Uh, Jesus speaks and says there in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And here's a key word, but contrast. So there's a contrast. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. It is a, it's an orthodox profession. This word Lord, kyrios can, can be used, you know, sir, gentleman. Uh, there's no reasons for us to believe anything other than these who speak Lord, Lord are saying Lord in the deity sense, your deity God, Lord, Lord, the two phrases, honestly, a mark of, um, of, of sincerity and affection. Think in your Bibles, the very few times, quite frankly, when it's two names put together, Samuel, Samuel, Moses, Moses, you know, it's, 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 it's a mark of, you know, great affection. And so here's what we can say about those who say, Lord, Lord. We can say it's an orthodox confession. It is a sincere, they mean it. It is a sincere confession and it is an insufficient profession. I want you to note the contrast he's making here in the passage is between one who says and one who does. Now we have to do a little work on this, but there's the contract, the one who says and the one who does. And notice that the doing, um, the, what gets, the one who's in the kingdom and you can know you're in the kingdom is the one who's doing the will of my father in heaven. So, so how, can, how can you and I know that, you know, I'm on the path of life not, not the path of destruction. How, how can I know? Well, the answer is how you answer the question, am I doing the will of the Father? Now, that raises another question, I hope. It's worth asking. What exactly? I mean, I want to get this. So what is the will of the Father? <laughs> I need to be precise here. Well, we're going to come back to that. But sticking with the text, I'll say this. Those who said, Lord, Lord, felt like they knew what the will of the Father was because we picked that up in verse 22. So notice here their impressive resume, verse 22. 
Jesus still speaking says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? It's like uh, Jesus knew what, you know, we said, Lord, Lord, and then, and then Jesus knows what we're gonna say. And so they say, well, in, in fact, beyond Lord, Lord, look at my resume. Look at what I do. Look at what I've done. You know, this verse begins with a time stamp, and that's probably one of the more important things we need to note um, to understand it properly on that day. Uh, I want to, 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 to show you that when the Bible says that day, uh, the, the, the original audience would know, oh, that day. <laughs> you know, it's not just any day. So it's a time stamp. Uh, and, and to cut to the quick, that day moves us from the present moment to a that day, a future day, an unknown day, but a certain day, and it is the day of God's judgment. It is the day that all human beings will stand before God. Now, as Christians and those who, are, who have put their faith in Christ, we don't stand before God to judge our sins, but he will certainly judge our our life and works and how we've stewarded that which he's entrusted to us. Think of that day, the judgment day that is most certainly coming. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 2, 11 speaks of it. And I wanted you to see the phrase in this way. Isaiah says, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. You know, the Bible writers don't go, will be exalted on judgment day. They didn't have to. They could just say that day. Think of Jesus, uh, Matthew um, 24, 36. Jesus himself says, but concerning that day, again, Jesus doesn't have to say, you know, concerning judgment day. He says, that day um, and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only on that day. So, so again, when we read verse 22, know that we're at a future, we're at a future day. And what will that day look like? What's going on on that day? Well, Jesus unpacks that for us. I'm gonna let him put this image in our minds of that day, Matthew 25, 31 to 32. Matthew 25, 31 to 32, Jesus says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So on that day, you see, there will be those who are sheep and there will be those who are goats. There, there will be those who, who are in the kingdom and there will be those who are not in the kingdom and they will be delineated and they will be separated out. And when you read that passage in Matthew 25, it's, it's a terrifying and beautiful picture for on that day, it says that Jesus will say to the sheep on his right, come, come, you are blessed of my father. But on that day, he will say to the goats on his left, to those who, who, don't, who don't know him, he will say, depart. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his 
angels. Depart from me. Here's what I find fascinating. And again, you have to read Matthew 25 to, to feel this, the whole, the whole chapter. Both groups are surprised. Now, here's what I mean by that. Those who are in, and Jesus says, come, blessed of my Father. When I say surprise, I don't mean like, I had no idea I was in. No, no, no. I mean surprise in the sense of, wow, oh my. You know, that, that, that joyful surprise. And then those who are not in and must depart are surprised in the despairing surprised way. Oh my, oh no, and it's too late to do anything about it. Well, back to our text, Matthew 7, 22. I want you to notice their resume and what they present is so orthodox and, 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 and right. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? That is, it, prophesy could be to foretell future, but it could also be to speak from God, like speak directly from God. Did we not prophesy, notice three times, in your name, and cast out demons, exercise demons, remove demons from people who are possessed, in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? I did it all in your name. What did they mean by that? It means that, they did these things in the authority of um, recognizing the character of Jesus and all his name represents and is. There's nothing in the text that, that would have us conclude that Jesus, as they said this, Jesus said, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. In fact, everything in the text would have us believe Jesus said, yeah, mm-hmm, you did. Yeah, I know. See, yeah, he, did, he doesn't deny that they did these things. By the way, you know, it's a bit of a caution and warning, is it not to us? And, and, and truly, you know, we see it even in our day. It was true in Jesus's day. It's true in our day. And it'll be true for till Jesus comes back. There are those who can gather crowds, big crowds, and speak in Jesus' name, cast out demons. Mighty works, by the way, that's miracles. They can, do, they can do real miracles. People do that all the time to this day. But there are many of those who do that. The Spirit of God is nowhere near it, nor in it. Here's, here's what's scary, is, is God allows that to go on for many for their whole life. So, so it's not like, you know, he stops and intervenes and says, stop doing that. It's like they are allowed to go their whole life. There will come that day when no, they won't be allowed to do that forever. And they will give account for that which was not genuine, which takes us to this devastating declaration. Verse 23, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Here's that word at, at, at the great judgment, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. C.H. Spurgeon said of these 
words. There is more thunder in those four words than you ever heard in the most terrible storm that rolled over your head. There is no stamp of foot or fiery glance to accompany them. They are spoken calmly and deliberately, yet they are terrible and overwhelming. I never knew you. If, if you wanted to know what, you know, when it says, when we speak of the wide and easy path to destruction, if you want to know what that destruction is, then, then we have a picture of that destruction here. It is on that day for Jesus Christ to say to you, I never knew you, depart. And it's, it's the forever of that depart and separation from God. You can teach, you know, you can stand here. It could be me. I could stand here and teach the Bible and, and be good at teaching the Bible. Um, you can lead a fellowship group. You can volunteer in the learning center. You can go on mission trips. You can become a missionary. You can disciple students. You can give to the poor, serve the homeless. You can pray, fast, heal, cast out demons, tithe, give generously. And on that day, hear these words. I never knew you. And, and if you do hear those words on that day, then you have no recourse. It's too late. Words spoken, eternal payment for your own sin. That word new or no is the Greek gnosko. Um, here's what's so important about this word. And we, I remember we talked a lot about this in the Gospel of John and of course, wherever it comes up because throughout the New Testament, gnosko is, is that it is not, it's not an intellectual knowledge. I mean, you can know answers to the ACT and that, that'll get you some discount on college tuition. Um, you can know facts about the world. This is not an intellectual knowing. So the most important thing about the biblical knowing, Gnosko, is that it is a relational knowing. It is an experiential knowing. It is an intimate engagement knowing. So much so that the Bible writers, I'm just gonna grab one and the first one, We'll use this word to describe sexual intercourse between a husband and a wife. Now that it shouldn't gross us out or weird us out because that's a gift, sexual intercourse between a husband and a wife. But, but it's, it, they'll use the word know, you know, so that we read in our Bibles, Adam knew Eve, she conceived and bore a son. This is the literal, this is the knowingness of, of what Jesus speaks here when he says, I, I, I never knew you. He's saying, I... On that day, if he says it, it will mean, he, what he'll mean by it is you and I never had a personal relationship. You and I never connected relationally. You and I were never with one another. I don't know you. Now, of course he knows you, but you know what I'm saying? He doesn't know in the biblical sense. When Adam and Eve rejected God, they departed the garden. They had to. The nation of Israel was in the promised land and they rejected God. They had to depart the promised land. And when any person 
rejects God, refuses to place their trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on that day, as Jesus said, you will depart from Jesus, i.e. you'll depart from God forever. I'm torn when I read this though, because I don't know about you, but you know, I go, wait, 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 hold on, time out. Um, look, their profession is orthodox and the works they're doing are really amazing. I mean, this is not, they're not doing evil, right? And so there's a sense to which, I, I don't know about you, but I look and go, now, we know this, we talk about it a lot, genuine biblical faith and genuine biblical works are inseparable. And by all appearances, they have faith and they have works. What's going on? Now, all we will do is take Jesus at his word. And Jesus says, well, what you see here is not biblical faith. It's not me saying that. This is Jesus saying that those who call him Lord, Lord, on that day, he will say, depart from me, you, you lawbreakers. Which takes us, I think, back to verse 21. And what I suggested was the fundamental truth we need to know, and that is, am I, am I doing the will of the Father? Because Jesus clearly says here, only those who are in the kingdom, those who are in the kingdom, will, they will be only, the only ones will be there are the ones who are doing the will, i.e. present tense, doing the will of God, doing the will of the Father. And if, if, if that's true, then, then we must ask the question, I said it earlier, what is the will of the Father? Because these, these people seem to be doing godly things. And Jesus is saying, you, you didn't do the will of my Father. Wait a minute, healing people? Casting out demons? So what is the will of the Father? Well, let's start with the immediate context, Sermon on the Mount within the Gospel of Matthew. The, 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 the key verse in the Sermon on the Mount that holds the whole body of the sermon together is Matthew 5, verse 20, when Jesus said, right at the very beginning, as he's beginning to unpack these things, he said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so here we go. So, so to be in heaven, one must possess a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. God's will is that we would be in the kingdom. That's why Jesus came. God's will is that we would possess a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees because unless you possess that kind of righteousness, you're not in. Everybody tracking with me? So God wants us in, and, and the only way in is a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Here's what I can tell you about the scribes and Pharisees is as we've, as you study the gospels, but even in the Sermon on the Mount, they said the right things. Y'all, they did the right things. And yet Jesus says they were unrighteous. And you go, well, who can get in? How? This is confusing me, you know, Jesus. Well, we've sought to describe this, and I think this is an appropriate uh, metaphor by that image of an iceberg. And I'm gonna bring us back to that because it's a, it's a very, I think, helpful picture that reminds us that 
you know, the, the scribes and Pharisees in that day, those who were listening to this, for, I mean, they, they were the creme de la creme. And, and Jesus says, you gotta go beyond that righteousness. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Because everything they do looks right. Well, fundamentally, here's what we know. Jesus says that it's not just the tip of the iceberg. It's the whole iceberg that must be righteous. You with me? You remember how we drew this? Remember we drew it as a heart? Remember, I, you, I don't know if you remember, but you know, I drew it as a heart like this, where you think of the quadrants of the heart and you go, oh, okay, so this is, this is what my life looks like on the outside, but there's all this under the waterline. Yeah, there's all this under the waterline. Jesus says the whole thing must be righteous. The, the heart, thoughts, emotions, desires, and choices, the essence of your being, the core of who you are. According to the Bible, the heart. So with the, with the, with the religious leaders, you know, it's like Jesus, Jesus said, look, this is their righteousness. But yours has got to go all the way below the waterline if you're gonna be in heaven. I'm gonna let Jesus unpack this. So, so listen to this, and I'll, I'll write this on, the, on, the, on the, the chart. But listen to Jesus as he says, let me tell you what's below the waterline on your religious leaders. This is Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So he goes, oh, clean. Ooh, it's so clean on the outside. But on the inside, greed and self-indulgence. Hmm. He continues, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. Just think of these words, clean, beautiful. But within, whew, go below the waterline, full of dead men's bones and all, how about this, all uncleanness. You know, when they says dead man's bones, you know, for us, it's like, that's, that's gross. Let me tell you something. Dead men's bones to them were not like, that's gross. It'd be like, <clears throat> you know, it's like, that is so non-God unholy. He goes on. So you also outwardly, tip of the iceberg, look at the word he uses. Outwardly, you are what? Righteous on the outside but within you are full of hypocrisy. Here's that word, lawlessness. Don't you ever wonder when I, I do, when I read that, Jesus at that last day says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I wanna go, well, I mean, really? Are they lawless? Lawlessness in the heart. The Father's will is an inward whole righteousness, a wholehearted righteousness, a righteousness that is first and foremost within, that yes, expresses itself outward, but is one integral righteousness. Without it, no one gets in to the kingdom of heaven. So how do you and I how could the religious leaders, because the offer was there for them, how can they get 
a righteous heart. Nothing less. Nothing less gains entrance into the kingdom. John 6.40 says this, for this is, here's a key phrase, the will of my father. Mm, oh, okay, here we go. This is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Surely we can start and say, well, okay, so the will of the father, yes, is the will of the father is that all would believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus such that all would be in the kingdom. That's the will of the father. John's gonna finish his gospel in chapter 20 with the purpose statement of his book and he restates this. He says there, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book, but these are written. Well, why are these written, John? So that you may believe, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, there's that phrase, in who Christ is and all that he has done. Y'all, it is God's will. Is it, is it God's will that you prophesy? I don't know. Is it God's will that you cast out demons? I, I don't know. Is it God's will that you do miracles? I don't know. Is it God's will that you believe on Jesus and thus gain a righteousness by which you will stand before Jesus in a knowing relationship with him and thus be in the kingdom of heaven? Absolutely. First and foremost. I'm gonna invite Mandy and the worship team back up because we've got some work to do. What I mean by that is we, we, we've got some application that we're gonna do and and. Perhaps this is the most important part of our time. You know, throughout the series, Rob and I have asked the question, Jesus, what does it mean, what does it mean to walk with you? What does it mean to follow you if we're studying these words? If we can walk out of here and go, boy, that was sobering. Woo. Let's go eat. I mean, you know, and, and, and that's not how God changes us. God changes us by that was true. Oh God, how do I respond to that truth? What's God calling me to believe and trust? And this is a day of decision. When the Bible speaks of belief, and I've tried to show us that, that, that the will of God is our belief in Jesus. When the Bible speaks of belief, y'all always remember, again, in the same way that gnosko is not just, I know the facts, but that it's an experiential knowing. When the Bible speaks of belief, it's speaking of a wholehearted experiential belief, not just a statement of belief, but, a, but a entrusting of your wholeness to what you say you believe. One way to think about it, you know, you could buy a ticket to Phoenix, go to the airport. You could stand there all day and say, yeah, that plane will take me to Phoenix. And I say, do you believe that? And you go, yeah, I believe it. Oh, so you trust that that plane will take you to Phoenix? Yeah, it'll stay here. You could stand in the airport all day. And, and I would say, and I think we'd all look at a person who did that and say, well, no, you didn't trust that that plane would take you to Phoenix because your trust is not genuine until you do what at the airport? Just say it, get on the plane. Yeah, and you know, that's, that's a simple analogy, but that's fundamentally what it is to have faith in Christ. It is not just say, I have faith in Christ. Yeah, I trust Jesus. It's to take the whole of your being and place yourself in Christ. I, 
I am standing in Jesus because only in Christ do I receive a righteous heart clothed in his righteousness. Does that make sense? This is trust. This is when it says believe in Jesus. It's to put your full weight in Jesus. What he did, I trust you say that he did that for me. If, if this is making sense to you, and for those who've trusted Christ, it's reinforcing something, but for someone maybe who has not, or you think you've trusted Christ, but you're wondering, may I say to you, the only reason you're even wrestling or wondering or it's kind of making sense is because God is at work in you right now. So, so just the mere fact of your, 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 your mind is working, that's the spirit of God at work in you, inviting you to trust. You, you wouldn't even... You wouldn't even, this would be like me up here talking gibberish, blah, 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 blah. Apart from the Spirit of God opening your eyes to go, that makes sense to me. This is the Spirit of God at work in your heart. And the invitation is trust Him and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for in that moment, your heart is changed. The righteous, here's the fundamental key. The righteousness of Jesus is the only righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's not your, your works. It's not you staying away from bad stuff and doing good stuff. It's the righteousness of Jesus. Perfect righteousness and that righteousness alone, which gives us a right standing before our God. If I could summarize this, I'd summarize it in this statement. And, and here, when I say this, don't misquote me and say, my pastor said this, because you got to go, wait, wait, it's all, I said this in the context of this message. It doesn't matter so much that you say, I know Jesus. In the end, what will only matter is if on that day, Jesus says, I know you. Now we can know that he's going to say that in time and space when we put our trust in him. Putting our trust in the name of Jesus. You know, the name of Jesus means God saves. So I want us to think about that for a second. The God who created the universe, who put the galaxies in place, the God who made you and everything you see, who has all power, all knowledge, holy, righteous, powerful, big God saves. So his nature is that he loves you, that he pursues you. He has done this through all of human history. To think the name Jesus means all of that. God saves. How easy it becomes for us sometimes to forget the weight and the beauty and the wonder and the power that is in just the name Jesus. Too often, 
I think each of us, but certainly culturally and, and worldwide, we can see evidence that there are those who just use the name Jesus for status, maybe to fit into a certain community, uh, maybe because sometimes it just seems like the right thing you're supposed to say at that time or in that place. Maybe it'll garner you some, some affection if you somehow, you know, throw the name Jesus out there. Or maybe people just kind of talk about him like he's the ultimate buddy. And we lose that sense of wonder and awe that we ought to have at the name of Jesus. It is the name of Jesus that saves. There's no other name. So I wanted to read a few scriptures over us this morning that remind us what is the name of Jesus and what, what does the word tell us about, about him? Acts 10, 43 says, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. And in Philippians 2, it says, this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow of those who are in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I think one really important one to look at today comes out of Mark 8 when Jesus is talking to Peter directly and he asks him the most important question I think that any of us can be asked. He says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And I think that's the question of that, that below the line iceberg we have this morning is when we call on the name of Jesus, what are we really believing about him when we call on his name? Do we believe he's the one that saves? Do we believe he's the Lord? <sighs> Deep down in our bones, do we trust him? We are presented with two options. Either he is the one worthy and we're going to bow to him in the here and the now, in this moment and every moment that we live or there will come a day when we bow, not in the beauty and the awe and the excitement, but in regret that we didn't see it and get it sooner. Thanks be to the Holy Spirit who impresses upon us the truth of who God is right now. And maybe you're hearing from the Holy Spirit for the first time about the truth of who Jesus is and you're calling on his name for the first time today. Or maybe you're being reminded of something and being presented with an opportunity to refocus, to hear him differently, to say his name differently. 
I wanna invite everybody into this prayer for a moment, regardless of which one of those places you might find yourself. And I'm just gonna pray in faith that the Holy Spirit is moving to interpret what the Word of God says, to reveal the truth to you, to let you see Jesus. Let's pray this together, God. I confess, Jesus, I confess. I am a sinner and I have ignored you. I have rejected you. And at times I have rebelled against you. I've even written you off. I've lived my life for myself and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I believe that you are the son of God and I believe that you lived a perfect life and that you died on the cross in my place, taking the punishment I deserved to save me. I believe in my heart and I confess with my mouth that you rose from the dead on the third day to overcome death. You did what I could not do for myself. I ask you now that you would come to be the Lord of my life, please, by your Holy Spirit, strengthen and enable me to live every day in a way that honors you. I love you. Thank you that because of your unfailing mercy and love and forgiveness, because of this gift of salvation, I will now spend my eternity with you. Thank you. In the mighty, beautiful, wonderful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Before we put some common language around this moment and sing in unity one more song. I want to let you know that whether you're watching online or you're here in this room and you felt compelled to pray that prayer for the first time today, we wanna know about that. We wanna walk through that with you. If you have um, already prayed that before, but maybe there are some other things being impressed on your heart right now in this context, we wanna know that too. We wanna pray with you about that. So I'm gonna pull up a, we're gonna pull up a website or an email address right here where you can reach out to us. And really this is for those things and more. If there's anything on your heart as we sing, I would love for this to create an atmosphere where you feel like you can pin something to, to one of us to pray for you and pray with you. Um, when the church is together gathered and singing, there are holy things that happen. It's a holy moment. God is here. God is here. So let's stand together. If you're comfortable with standing, we, we want to sing of this name, the name of Jesus, the beauty in it, the power in it, the wonder of it, and not forget that.